Hello, Harje, because five chicken blue and yellowish. Good morning, Savelin. Then head that granella shot that fat crayolu hula savelish Aaron. Welcome to episode seven of Folklore Fragments, folks. We're still here, still avoiding the defamation laws, hopefully, and ready to delve into this month's topic, which is pause for dramatic effect there, Cúchulainn and the Ulster Cycle. Now, there are certain characters in Irish mythology that will be familiar to all children and will remain forever embedded in the subconscious of the adults they eventually become. The heroes, Finn McCool, Croher McNassa, Cúchulainn, the lovers, George and Leisha, Jermot Skrénia, Oshins Niamh the warrior women, Queen Maeve and Skeha. We grow up with these tales of their battles, glorious, bloody and brutal. And as children, we absorb such tales kind of uncritically, enjoying the drama and not really thinking too deeply about them. And as adults, they become mere whispers then, no longer explored. And yet there's so much in these tales to chew over, so much that we can actually enjoy more as we grow older, I think. Questions of local history, topography, literary style. And it's for this very reason that Johnny and I, hello Johnny. Hello, hello. <laughs> that we chose this month's topic. Um, we find that so many people are interested in these characters and these tales, but that they can find it sometimes difficult, don't they, Johnny, from mm. what they tell us, to find information on them, uh, a one-stop shop, if you like. So today we aim, we hope, to offer a solution. So we'll put some basic foundation stones in place for you on the topic and then add a few pillars as we go along, to which you can add yourselves, hopefully, as you continue on your um, travels and your own research. Before the whole thing collapses in on top of itself. It was a fine metaphor until you said that, Johnny. Yes, it, was. it was a fine metaphor. Right, so let's jump in and take a look at this corpus of stories that we refer to as the Ulster Cycle or in the Skelta Ruriarte and Maravin Medatu Sugedic. Right, Johnny, do you want to. Will we, I've done a lot of spouting we there. We rant. We rant. You have a wee rant now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the. The Ulster Cycle is one of the main um, branches of our early. of our vernacular literature, the early Irish literature. Mm-hmm. And as you're saying there, like the, the, the richness and kind of the there's the wealth of material of, of kind of prose and verse um, and the kind of division and panorama presented in some of the literature is just it's fantastic it's absolutely amazing really kind of exciting stuff to, to go through but what I often find from from talking to friends at times that I'd have there are kind of there have been queries say from from friends where they'd wonder like um, how exactly do these tales interrelate mm-hmm. how are they different um kind of what's the the history of them really or h- how do they kind of find even sources to read these stories or yeah. to kind of familiarize themselves with them and there are certain stories from the Ulster cycle that we all would have kind of learned bits and bobs in school about Cuchulain or how we got his name and that sort of stuff yeah. that people have this kind of dim generally often a kind of a, a dim sense of maybe some of the characters and some of the stories so we'll hopefully try and explore that in greater detail today uh, with the Ulster cycle but when you look at at, at kind of Irish literature, early Irish literature, which starts really with the arrival of, of, of Christian monks to, to this this place. You have to bear in mind, I suppose, the written word comes to Ireland as a, as a religious expression. It's, it's not this yeah. kind of... Um, it's a tool, isn't it's it? It's religious, and it's a specifically kind of Christianized religious tool in, in a way. Like you had obviously kind of Aum scripts and, and so on before that, but the written word and, and the creation of manuscripts and, and all that sort of stuff is very much part and parcel of monastic tradition up to around the 12th century when the big kind of universities are, are established then. Mm-hmm. But at this phase, really, you have in our surviving to us today in several large manuscripts exist the majority of our early Irish literature and the, the, the remainder of which, enormous amounts of which have been lost. But then you have these other kind of surviving fragmentary texts and tales and, and corpuses of tales and so on that were transcribed by the early monks 
but that were often viewed or are often or generally at least understood to have had an existence in an oral tradition that far far predates the 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 written the, the, written, the manuscript yeah. so in the example say okay so to then maybe just to look at say at early Irish literature if you imagine it as I tend to imagine it as a kind of broad tree growing out of the ground whatever and that at its base it has several large branches coming out from it and we're not going to look at all those branches today we're going to look at one but even to split maybe to focus on some of the three of the big separate branches that that feature their own characters and their own tales and their own kind of um, trajectories and, and panoramas and visions and so on and angles in them uh, we have the mythological cycle is one corpus of tales and corpus of texts and that deals largely with the the, the people of the Tuatha the mythic race who inhabit Ireland before humans come and so even the last podcast we did on fairy forts, you have remnants of the Duhidadana existing in the fairy, the understanding of the fairy world and the other world and that sort of stuff. And then you have um, an enormous corpus of poetry and narrative that had a huge impact on the, the kind of oral literature and, and the, the folk tradition in Ireland um, as far as storytelling and so on was concerned. And that was the, the Ossianic or the Fenian cycle, which deals with the stories of Phil McCool, Fionn and the, the Fionn and his son Oshin, this band of warriors who travel around the country generally uh, disemboweling serpents and having the crack basically and hunting and so on. And then you have uh, the Ulster Cycle, which is the focus of today's um, podcast. And the Ulster Cycle deals largely with the main character of Cúchulán, mm. who's um, the, the central kind of exploits of this demigod and mythic heroic champion, an extremely violent uh, champion, they, they form the corpus of tales that focus on, on the Ulster Cycle. But the Ulster Cycle itself, imagine as this kind of, you know, 10 series long of kind of like Game of Thrones on steroids kind of thing, where there's all these interconnecting narratives that relate, but around this kind of prime or uh, central figures, basically, of whom Cúchulán is one. And this central epic or prose and kind of verse epic of, of, of the Ulster Cycle is Tawn Bokulán, the cattle raid of Cooley. And that's um, the narrative that we'll look at today and at Cúchulán more specifically where you have the Cúnachta, the armies of the Cúnachta with Queen Maeve and King Alil moving against the, the Ultra tribes to steal a supernatural bull, the, the brown bull of Cúlí, mm. um, from the from the Ulster people. And so they're all magically laid low by a curse that was put on them and the only um, person who can stand against them is Cúchulán. And so he single-handedly kind of um, routes their armies and destroys everyone until he's, until he's well, disemboweled. Indeed, and his intestines on the ground. Intestines on the ground, and a uh, uh, spear killed by a satirist. But, um, so that's the kind of, the Ulster Cycle is one of the main branches of the early Irish literature that, that, we, that has kind of come to us today in manuscript form. Um, and I suppose it's, it's, I mean, it's a separate thing we can talk about later, how that even interacts then with folk tradition. Mm. Because the material we're looking at now as well, and we'll get into this later I suppose, isn't, this is kind of the, the old um, bardic elitist, priestly or scholarly kind of expression of mythological text which mm. is kind of polar opposite inverse opposite in a sense to folk tradition it's kind of taken as the same thing up, up, mm. often but it's a kind of opposite it's it's the scholarly learned priestly elitist kind of bardic classes who who recite these large kind of runs and and, and kind of epics or whatever but then of course they find their way down into folk tradition and often these narratives are kind of expressed and recited by particularly skilled individuals and likewise the elite expressions that find ex- that the, these narratives are also drawn from the mass of, of people, uh, that kind of organic uh, uh, mass, whatever, that, that kind of go, it, it goes both ways in a certain extent. Um, but yeah, this, this, what we're looking at today largely focus on translations from these early manuscripts. 
and that's actually uh, some, and lots uh, of the problems that come along with that. Yeah, that's well. a good point actually that we should state at the outset that myself and Johnny are working from translations. Um, we did not spend hours in the Royal Irish Academy. No, we should have, we should have, we should have said that we did. Yeah. We should have yeah. said that we did. Of course we did. <coughs> but um, I'm working from the Carson translation of the of the thing, and Johnny's work working from Thomas Kinsella's. Yeah, probably um, with the great Louis de Brocky, um illustration. Yes. Yeah. So we are working from translations, and even just speaking amongst ourselves, we found it interesting how both author, authors approached the subject and how different episodes were represented in the varying um, books we used. So it's just to bear in mind that what we read and what we're interpreting is by way of English translation, but um, like a lot, a lot of it even was said even with the translations. This there's um, Frank O'Connor, the, the Irish writer. He said in the backward look, he's kind of he wrote a short history of Irish literature, and he said that when he's speaking about the tone, that it's been rendered practically unintelligible, and that I suppose that it's one of these kind of defects. Uh, Kinsler himself says that this early text from which he was working is the work of many hands and in places is little more than the mangled remains of miscellaneous scribal activities. There are major inconsistencies and repetitions among the incidents. On occasion the narrative withers away into cryptic notes and summaries. Extraneous matter is added, varying from simple glosses and comments to wholesale indiscriminate interpolations from other sources, in some cases over erased passages of the original. So it's was not there any comma of, in there at all? There, there may have been, but I think I just swept boldly okay, over good. them. Um, there is a semicolon immediately afterwards. Uh, so there's kind of this, this idea that there's a fragmentary, kind of shattered piece with no clear narrative tone. There are different monks um, transcribing this material. The manuscript, say, the Yellow Book of Lecan and the Book of Leinster, and the Larabuin, the Hira that was compiled in uh, Clamac Noyce in the 12th century, yeah you have this kind of full version of the text where the writer has tried to have this kind of, to try and present it as coherently as they can. And that was the one that was often translated by Lady Gregory and others that yes, has these kind, of, um, these, these kind of popular events that are known. Kinsella went for the earliest version of the manuscript because he thought that the language was finer, but the problematic kind of components in were the sense that it, at times it just veers into these kind of, um, like you're saying, cryptic kind of notes and anonymous scribal activities or whatever you're saying. So there's a real trouble in kind of piecing this thing together um, and then also within the text apart from the prose it contains these large poetic runs what we call the rusks yeah, yeah. And, and these are kind of he said that they were often um, he took he, he took kind of greater uh, liberty with them in a sense because they were so fragmentary and difficult to understand mm -hmm. sometimes they're these kind of prophetic utterances or a summary of what's just occurred and so the whole the whole kind of text I suppose with these manuscripts from these kind of fragmentary sources has been compiled what remains of this this saga this epic but the language in it suggests that it's the, the 12th century manuscript in which it's compiled and which we can kind of look at today consists of, of um, a copy from an, of an older manuscript from the 8th century but that the idea is that it was generally understood that the tone that the ulster cycle and this narrative that we're talking about or this series of narratives takes place around the time of christ mm -hmm. in ireland and and you have a sense of not just early Ireland, but kind of the tribes of, of Ireland and Britain and a kind of barbaric um, pre-Christian view of, of Europe and of the world, a very, very alien world into which to, to, to delve, basically. Um, but it shows, some, it, it does, it's not particularly flavoured by, by kind of Christian theology or Christian morality. No, no, most these definitely monks not. Writing yes. it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I think just picking up on what you said, what I found fascinating, just because it does appear at the time specifically in so many of those manuscripts and that they do vary, reading it as as if you were, say, an English scholar 
um, studying a novel or a text. To me, because we were speaking about this yesterday, where the style is quite interesting. It doesn't flow, even in the text that, that I read in Carson, um, you kind of get that sense of this disjointed narrative yeah. sometimes, where it's 5,000 words um, you know, yeah. chopped down and they died. Yeah. And then the next day, and it's just, it's yeah, not, it, it doesn't it, flow as a modern um, story would where we're so sophisticated in requiring character development and kind of narrative arcs. We just don't have any of that. These characters aren't well-rounded in any way. We yeah. don't really get a sense of personality or hopes and dreams or any kind of depth to them. Mm. And it does, it stops and starts and it, um, it is, it does appear disjointed, but there's so much I think to enjoy in that. There as is, a, as yeah, a yeah. Lover of I, language. I, yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoy actually the way that the, the characters are often these kind of, they're these archetypal mm, figures yeah. of uh, a certain kind of um, behavior or attitude or tendency mm. or something like that, you know. But um, but it points to, like, Dahiya Hogan mentions as well, and um, Graz there, he mentions in The Lore of Ireland that kind of this saga has had characters kind of squashed into it mm. at later dates like Cúchulain yes, who we all know he, he, he doesn't appear to he replaces the original hero who's called Fíach yeah. who like who the hell is Fíach I know he, he never heard of the and never heard of, yeah. but Cúchulain gets gets smushed in there later on um, and he becomes this kind of this this catalyst as this figure uh, you have the the sun god kind of Lu making an appearance partly maybe because of, on reference with reference to the, the the cult that exists to him around Cooley where part of the narrative is set but you have this kind of mishmash of figures and episodes being kind of shoved in and Ferdia in that same vein apparently was shoved in oh was he yeah with Cúchulain yeah that, where, where was he what, what was the that that um, episode at the end where he's killed obviously with, without Cúchulain you can't have Ferdia yeah yeah, but yeah all these entails were later insertions yeah and even the the um all the kind of the text beforehand and so on so there's kind of yeah like you were saying it, it'll say like and 5,000 were killed or it'll say and they camped there for a night some say it was 30 nights and some say it was 90 nights mm. and then or they did that for a year and then it just carries on for this paragraph kind of describing or then it'll just end and but I kind of one of the articles I was reading um Homer and the Irish hero tale because I know you love a bit of Homer and um, but they were speaking about just these ancient epics and yeah. looking at links between um, say Homeric works and kind of our own Irish sagas and these kind of the existence of formulas and mm. this kind of writing style of the triads and the doublets mm. and alliteration and these storytelling tools to help the the storyteller or the person reciting it to kind of yeah, take yeah. a break to kind of add imagery and it was fascinating because you can see those parallels um, mm. across all you've got these common motifs of the, the voyages or the battles the feasts these that are common across the epics. Yeah, yeah. So really, again, we just absorb these stories as children uncritically and um, just hungry for the drama of them. Mm. But I have to say, I really enjoyed researching this one because you get so much more out of it coming to it with greater life experience, I suppose, yeah. and more awareness of literature and, you know, human endeavour. Yeah. It's, it's interesting what you mentioned with the Homeric, kind of this thing of the triads and the, the verse quality to it. Mm. Lots of the, the, the language of the tone is in... Uh, prose but then you have these kind of verse components to it um but it's something that you hear and we have some 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 recordings we've got digitized for, for the from our the, the audio archive here a big shout out to anna and simon, and simon very kindly who were so <laughs> yeah. great in doing this for us so thank our you sound guys. archivists indeed yeah our, our, we were also sound archivists who just helped us out <laughs> they with, are with getting our, our boom boom them, yeah Without them, we would have been stuck because these tapes weren't digitized at all. So we had to kind of dig out the references. And, and But one of the, the things that I noticed straight away from, from the, the, the recitations in, in folk tradition, um, in the Irish language of these uh, kind of accounts, like you say, say warriors setting off to sea, 
apart from those, those kind of alliterative runs the, the, where the teller's mind can kind of sit back mm. with this bit piece that they've memorized but it also dazzles the, the those listening because they're so complicated and they just kind of go on and on and on you have th- those kind of interspersed these kind of floating motifs but you really hear it you hear this the kind of syllabic content of these narratives how they're spoken with a kind of set rhythm as opposed to just someone kind of telling a story Th- these are kind of the work of the the scaly again it's like elitist thing even in folk tradition where you might have lots of shanach of people who's, who kind of reference historic lore but not many scalies and and this kind of these narratives reference reference that sort of thing and it goes back across say you mentioned um homer and those kind of um uh, tendencies in kind of ancient ancient Greece or whatever. Miles Dillon talks about that as well, but he brings it back even to the Indo-European tradition. Mm-hmm. So he, here's again Homer. It's a, in this quote from a book of Miles Dillon. It says Homer speaks of Clea Andron, which he translates as songs and praise of warriors. But he relates this back to old, the older older Hindu and Vedic kind of kind of um, tradition. And he also says, I'm probably pronouncing this totally incorrectly, uh, Naram Samsya, with the same meaning. So these songs and praise of warriors. And he says they're an important part of the earliest Vedic poetry. And this is kind of calls attention to the, to the, 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 the this Vedic notion of undying fame and the Greek, what was called um, aptitian chaos, which has the same meaning. And so the suggestion that in Indo-European tradition, this kind of heroic poetic diction has existed for a long time. That chaos is the same as clue, called, like clue that oh, we'd have in Irish. That there's that kind of undying renown and fame or whatever and that kind of approach to these heroic figures is something that you see uh, come across in Cúchal and so even again like we keep saying with, with aspects of folk tradition when you look at Ireland you look at Europe yes. you know and then when you look at European tradition you look at the Indo-European tradition when you go to these particular kind of arch- archetypal and much much older figures um, but the, the, the figures I suppose at the, se- at the centre of this references the, the exploits largely of the the that warrior known initially as, as Satanta. Yes. That was the name that he was uh, born with, I suppose. Um, and that's going to be one of our first fun facts that we discovered, isn't it, as to the... Hit the origins. The origins yeah, of really Satanta. Because we didn't know, and the Hayohogan, and Yanid Yatsraki actually mentioned in his entry on Cúhollin, and it's been noted as well by... And there was... I love this article because it's by Miss Hobbs. Oh, Miss Hobbs. Miss Hobbs. Obviously, off, off the time when she was noted as Miss Hobbs only, but they're discussing whether Cúhollin was an Irishman or a Briton. And mm. at first, I thought, oh, what are they talking about? And apparently, there was a Britonic tribe by the name of the Satanti, mm-hmm. which was thought to have its seat in Lancashire mm. um, at the mouth of the Mersey. And obviously, if geographically, you can imagine that migration from the Loud area across would have been possible. Yeah. And that this theory exists that Cúhollin may have had roots um, with these, w- with this tribe, hence the name Satanta or um, Shidenta, apparently was the, Shidenta, yeah, the, was pr- the pr- pronunciation, pronunciation. Of it, yeah. So that this link with this um, British tribe already... Is, is British the right term? Yeah, it would just be kind of early, um, well, tribe even from, from early early Britain, yeah. So that this link could have existed, that although he may not necessarily have been born there, that his roots or his ancestors could have migrated across to Ireland and to his own, um, is it Morhemnia? Morhemnia, yeah, the plain um, in, in, in County Louth, yeah. Where he was most associated with. And to my mind, I just always absorbed it. Satanta, that was his name, fine. Mm. Um, but that these links, that these possible links with this Satanti tribe exist. Yeah, Ptolemy mentions them. He's the, the second century geographer. And he says that this 
tribe live in um, in, in Lancashire. Mm. And then they have their deity, uh, Sintonatios, who means where, wayfarer. And so you have this figure of Satanta, and there's another Irish text that refers to the the, um, the shade in his name, referring to uh, a route or a road, and the idea that he that he's then a chariot warrior. He's this here, and so mm. you have this say, uh, you have this tribe, these people in, in Lancashire. The idea is that there's this Satanta over in, in Lancashire, mm-hmm. and that they bring the technology uh, of the the kind of smithcraft that relates specifically to the war chariot, and they have this figure, Sintonatios, as the head of their cult, one of their deities, and that this kind of satanta figure largely this kind of wayfarer or uh, road faring warrior is one on a chariot and that's one of the main motifs that we see in the in the thon time yes. and again it's kuchulin going around in his chariot mm. and and that he further mentioned as well in that the kuchulin uh, apart from the name derived popularly that in in, in these texts meant that, that coal meant chariot and so that he's the, the, he's the warrior of the smith and since he's he's the um He's the, the the chariot warrior, mm. as opposed to the hound of Cullen, which is we'll yes, get to. Yes, which is you know. the, the more the simpler narrative that comes in later yeah, yeah. That, that we would know as children. But it's it's fantastically interesting again that you have you know you have this um, again these tribes from between you know Britain and Ireland or of these islands essentially um, in bringing with them the, the the war chariot and the battle chariot and so on that that features so heavily in this material. So you really get an, an impression in a sense of this kind of early early Ireland, early Britain, early Europe, when you when you go through this particular um, this set of tales, these narratives. It was kind of traditionally at that period we would have been like racially, linguistically, even culturally, very linked in in these islands. Absolutely, so I mean, and we still are. We still are. That's absolutely well, the case. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like that's still if you take true. if you take the, the the different kind of tribes, linguistic relations, the PQ split between the kind mm. of the older. Um, between Welsh, Cornish, and Manx, and Scots, Gaelic, and Irish, and so on, uh, but even the older kind of forms. Again, you you can trace this across even into, you know, English, Old English, the Germanic traditions, and again, as as Miles Dillon mentions, the older Indo-European, um, kind of bardic and epics of these kind of this warrior elite kind of trampling around. Basically, this is part of that kind of civilizational inheritance that comes down to us today, um, largely through through these manuscripts, but that also kind of resonates in in other kind of um older kind of, I suppose, archetypes and symbols, basically. But that's one of the things we'll probably touch on as we are reading. Again, Cúhollin is known to us, but he's known in Scotland. Mm, he's yeah. known in the Isle of Man because, you, you know, my um, soft spot for Scotland. Indeed. So obviously the island of Skye, which we'll talk about, was where he trained with mm. the um, great warrior, Tutor Skaha, who happened to be a woman, mm. saying nothing. And But then equally, he at one point fell in love, didn't he, with the daughter of, the would Ethan. he have been the king of the Isle of Man, um, Lear oh, McManon? Oh, Monarch of Lear, right, I didn't know that. Yeah, f- Fan, I think F A N N. So, again, when I speak to kind of friends in Scotland, or I would have asked, um, you know, what do you know about? They would know, obviously, Finn McCool and they would know yeah. Cuchulain because our tales tell of Cuchulain going to that side yeah. to train, and their tales then pick up. And when this Irish man came, and so we'll talk about topography as a huge totally, aspect yeah. of the town, because of how place names came about and how each episode creates its own um, line of place names. But equally in the Isle of Skye, that lovely book I was talking about earlier from 1923, The Place Names of Skye mm. and um, Nearby Islands by William Alexander Forbes. And one of, he goes through a huge list of um, place names on Sky, but obviously one of them is Dunsky, 
which is the the fort of bloom or the shadowy fort amazing but associated in their kind of folklore with skaha or this warrior tutor and they know that kuholing came to train there and mm. they actually have a saying in the isle of sky which i didn't know but i love it's um Hula Kuholin, mm. so as strong as kuholing and they they have that because he is as much a part of their folklore as of ours and equally so, I imagine, in the Isle of Man. I know we have some lovely yeah. Isle of Man listeners, so they can correct me if I'm wrong, but that they would equally know of Cúhollín yeah, yeah. and those characters. And you have, don't you have um, Cullen's Peaks in the Isle of Sky? You do indeed, yeah, that's the right. Absolutely, these huge, impressively He got around. Beautiful. He did. Fair title. <laughs> he did. Um, but so, yeah, I get you have... There's a kind of the... the, the, the one of some of the oldest examples of, of Irish literature bringing in... And combining aspects of kind of the broader European context and yeah. Indo-European context that find expression in this kind of archetypal demigod, heroic, mythic champion who's fated to a life of kind of fame and renown, but also a very short life, which mm-hmm. he gladly accepts. And um, I suppose, so it, it, the figure is called Satanta, and he, he, that's the kind of the youth. And part of this kind of the, the narrative surrounding him, I suppose, of becoming Cúchulainn, is related in the context of the Thon as these armies are marching against Ulster, an exiled king from Ulster is marching with the armies of the Connachta as they're marching kind of eastward into Ulster, and it's like this kind of apocalypse now thing where they're going deeper and deeper into the jungle, and and um, this king is is describing Cúchulainn mm. in the, and all his kind of boyhood deeds and and exploits because he was very close to Cúchulainn because he was his. Well, the whole thing of foster fathers and foster sons and foster brothers is huge in the town yeah. and can confuse a reader sometimes. Yeah. But Fergus would have been classed as a foster father yeah. or a tutor yeah. at least. Yeah. Yeah. So they were very close. They were really close. And so he's he's recounting all these deeds as these armies march across. And meanwhile, Cúchulainn himself is leaving these signs in the landscape mm-hmm. and challenges to these warriors and to say that they can't pass. They're bound by these kind of rules of honour mm-hmm. unless they can... Uh, a similar warrior can do a similar feat, whatever. But one of the most kind of the, the common stories around Cúchulainn gets told in that context as these armies are marching along, and it's described how um, th- there is one day Cúchulainn MacNasty is going around. He, he's going off to a, um, a feast, a feast in in Cullen the Smith's fort, and so he sees Cúchulainn playing as a boy, he's only a five-year-old boy at the stage, and he's playing with his hurley and his javelin and all the sort of things that he usually he was wanted to play with. And Crowher um, sees him playing against the other, the boyhood troop of Ulster, as they're called. And he's kind of, he's, he's just destroying all these kids at sports and everything. He's kind of beating everyone, even though he's only a tiny little kind of toddler, basically. And so Crowher stops. And Crowher is his uncle, this high king as well. Yes. And so he says, he invites him along to this feast later. And Satanta explains that he's, he hasn't, he's not done uh, enough with his playing yet or whatever. He'll follow them along. So Crowher McNassa goes on to this feast. And Cullen, the smith, all these warriors are kind of gathered in to the to the fort. And Cullen says to him, is there anyone else who's meant to come along? And Crowher forgets the invitation he extended to the young boy. And he says, no, there's no one else. So Cullen releases uh, his hound, who needs three huge chains to kind of keep him uh, at bay or whatever. So they, they lock up the fort and release this hound. And then Satanta comes along, playing with his hurley and his slither and all sorts of stuff, and his little javelin as he does, throwing them in the air and catching them before they land and all sorts okay. of stuff. And the dog, he suddenly is met with this kind of terribly ferocious dog. And all the warriors in the fort hear this kind of cry and think, oh shit, they remember kind of what, what's occurred. The boy's been killed. The boy's been killed, yeah. yeah. They all step outside and they see that the boy has taken the dog and bashed its brains out against the rock. Or in other instances, as one particularly diligent 
um, uh, scribe or monk mentions it that in other versions he throws he hits the schlitter down the throat mm-hmm. of the dog and disembowels and its entrails are everywhere and all these kind of gory descriptions and all of the kind of the heroes and warriors of Ulster are greatly kind of pleased by this that the boy has survived but Colin himself is greatly dismayed and upset because the dog that protected his flocks and his family and, and everything has and all these warriors has been has been killed and so Satanta offers himself as um, in place of that, that he he would be the hound of Colin. He would protect his flocks, protect his family, and protect the whole and plane, he protect everyone. The new one. And he's going to train a whelp of that same um, that same breed until it can do the job of its sire, basically. And so all of the warriors recognise this first. That's his first deed of of valour. And so from then he gets the name Cúchulainn, the hound of Colin. That's where he takes his kind of um, this this name, basically. That that is then fated to kind of be on the lips of people and survive in Ireland and abroad forever mm. basically which and we're still talking about still it still talking now. about them through 2017 um, but that's one of the kind of ones that say you would have maybe learnt in school often there'd yeah. be this sense of like oh Cuchulain was this little kid and you know it's he killed a dog it? or something like that yeah. Yeah. but it's it's a tiny part that story is told in the context of these armies marching along and it's kind of breaking up the narrative and while they're trying to go down all these little you know laneways and hidden roads to avoid and through the lonely places in Ulster these stories are being related. So there's a terrifying sense of like, who is this person? Before they meet and he's him. leaving these signs in the landscape all the time and, and kind of picking them off and killing them. And he's just one man on his own, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's the first of the kind of the major, I guess, episodes that that, that made it into popular uh, oral literature as well, actually. I'll, I'll, if one of these these recordings that can, that can give an example of that, I'll play it for a minute. Um, because narratives regarding Cúchulain didn't really, or the Ulster cycle itself didn't make it in, into folk tradition in a huge way, not the way the Fenian cycle did. Not the way that the Finn McCool stories would know. But certain episodic kind of pieces did. And and so this is this is one of them. This is um, uh, Sean O'Henry, who's fantastic. John Henry in, in um, Kilgallagan, Carrighaig in, in northwest County Mayo. And there's amazing material of, of John Henry and Seamus O'Cahan on, sitting on the beach on YouTube. Oh, I've seen the BBC this. documentary yes, about the kind of... photograph recently with them. Yeah, yes. I think it's the thing on YouTube, if you want to search it, it might be titled Ireland's Last Monoglot or something like that. It's like, That's the title for the video. Um, but he's it actually gives an indication, that'd be good in the context of this podcast, he, he shows the, the run where he, he, he describes warriors setting forth or whatever. But this is John Henry and... Seamus asks him, "Do you know anything else about Cúchulainn?" And he's like, "Oh no!" And then and then gives this story. But you can hear the kind of the Slavic, the kind of poetic content of it as well. So this is an Irish, but we'll explain it. We re more listening vigilant, we were teacher big, we call Holland Yar White. A Hanik Shogi Tahari Shaw, who's the Shapolista, Glan Lata Dutarina, Skilma Mokuntach in the E. We Kuntach in your re, who's this to the seal fall. Och, we call a warning who's been your label berry. Nahara Hanaki Kal Morshagi Kuahon. We ball mittel in the law we Kuahon. Was the old Hanieri Hort. So that's John Henry, and he's reciting, and he mentions this kind of this metal, the slither or whatever, um, that Cúchulainn uses to, to kill this, this hound, and that's how he gets his name. So this, this is one of the kind of the 
items from the town from the Ulster cycle that made it in, into popular folk tradition in the sense of this kind of narrative. And this is Michal Abuil from, from Rana Fersta. This was recorded in 19, 1961 by Leo Corduff. I think it was Leo Corduff, anyway. Um, and this is, again, he's referencing how Cúchulán got his name, and he had that sense of this kind of verse being... being uh, uh, this material is a kind of recitation, in a way. Goodness. That to me is the the first thing. I, obviously, it's my dialect, but um, a prayer just came into my head. Hmm. Just the way he 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 just knew it. Yeah, it yeah, like yeah, yeah. Like saying our father, he yeah, just knew it totally. off by heart. And, and that that's why this was the kind of preserve, I suppose, of particularly skilled storytellers who would recount these these kind of um, epic narratives. That it wasn't. Say when we talk about narrative tradition and we look at oh, here's a legend regarding the banshee or or a haunted place or something. It's told in the first person, with the, or, or, or not necessarily even, but it's told this aspect of belief as a central component of it. And so there's not the same performative quality. There might be an aspect of performance to it, but you're kind of saying, uh, I was in this place, or a friend of a friend was here, and something weird happened, and so on. Yeah. So it has a certain life and, and texture of its own. But these narratives um, are kind of more, more rigid and contain more kind of high artistry, I suppose, in them where the individual has to learn that just these tracts off and off and off and they could they could go on and on and on these stories and be told in winter nights specifically as well to kind of pass the time for entertainment you see in in the early manuscripts as well there's a sense of this that the most important people in in or some of the or some of the most powerful people in early Irish society given that it was an, an oral society that there wasn't kind of the written word before the coming of christianity were the poets the philly mm. and that there are lists i don't have them to hand here but there were lists of say, the, the hundreds upon hundreds of narratives that they had to have to heart and, and law tracts and so on and genealogies before they could be called a fila. So some of them actually would be maybe courtings or battles. Some of them also were called thon, just raid. And, and There's actually types a of few raids. more thons There's than several. just thon so, so when we talk about thon balcunia, the cattle raid of Cooley, it's generally shortened to the thon, mm. but, but thon as itself, as the idea of raiding and raiding your neighbours, was uh, formed a very popular corpus of, of narrative tradition mm. in and of itself. And, and some of which, aspects of which, have, have made it particularly into the Irish language storytelling tradition, um, more so than the English language one. We do. Actually, we have a few in the archive for those who are interested. They're more than welcome. You were saying, you went through the cards. I was surprised oh, by that. Yeah. yeah, no, this was actually what was interesting. And just kind of to pick up on that point that you were saying, Johnny, that the Ulster cycle and the, say, for example, Thane Bohulni, it hasn't filtered down as much into the oral tradition as perhaps Finn McCool and the Finn cycle would have. So just out of curiosity, I went to look at the headings in the Ulster cycle drawer, so to speak, in our index. And we have, you know, the big hitters, Cúhollin, we've got Cúhollin and his son Connolly, we've got the Crave Rua, we've got Marin the Gun, we've got the Kuri, Cúna Hitnerka, then different characters, Connell, Kerna, Dirdres, Naisha, Cúhor McNassa, and like I said, Ten Boflunish. But interestingly, there, we do have an entry, as you'd expect, on the te- on the ten that we're discussing today. But guess how many cards there are in it? Come on, three. Yeah, it's mad. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. That to me, 
I thought, oh God, has somebody taken them out and not put them back? But actually, no, we only have three, which fits in with what it's we were mad. saying yeah. in that it has only filtered down in little sections that have obviously been popped in with, say, Kuhulin or the incident with Ferdia. But as a whole, the Tenpohulnia only has three index cards. And strangely, one of the things that you found in some instances, because on the other hand, say, this branch of the Ulster Cycle and the characters therein is of a more, um, in the context of folk tradition, it's somewhat diminutive when placed alongside the branch of the Fenian cycle, mm. which had a huge impact and, and has kind of the stories that were told and recited of Fionn and the Fianna are, are, exist in much greater profusion and not just in, in Ireland, but of course around the Isle of Man and Scotland and further afield as well, mm. that, that these kind of figures exist. But sometimes you get narratives where Cúchulain crops up in a story with Fionn yes. as, as a giant or sometimes I was listening to one the other day, uh, one of the tapes, and Cúchulain is a shepherd, shepherd boy for Fionn. So these are two totally mutually exclusive kind of worlds that are never meant to meet, but in, in the world of folk tradition, you know, people just take from what they know and the characters that they, they use. Remember. But Fionn becomes this kind of much um, more central character, but Cúchulain makes an appearance. So the figure of Cúchulain has, has certainly impressed himself in, on the minds of, of individuals in, in folk tradition. Um, and, and in the context of, kind of nationalism as well, he certainly has as this kind of figure of heroic struggle or whatever. Um, but but in the same sense, the the broader epic cycle of the Thorn and Queen Maeve and Alil as they kind of struggle against the armies of Ulster to take this enormous kind of the, the, the seal, this brown bull, that hasn't really made its way in. And maybe it's because of this fragmentary nature of the text, and or also maybe it's the the kind of the ultra violent nature of it. I don't know why or the the. Um, but it's interesting, given the success of things now like Game of Thrones and these huge epic series that you see. Reading this, now although I'll admit it, I, I have not watched Game of Thrones, I don't know what it's about. Mm. I think it, I don't know, there's, there's lots of battles Bare and sex and, and blood. There. Yes, yeah. there you go, love a bit of alliteration. Yeah. But to my mind, um, those audiences would love the town. Like I was just Absolutely, so surprised yeah. coming to it again as a much kind of older person. There's just so much to chew over in it. Um, that we oh, have. It's incredible. The people who enjoy those sorts of things would just really enjoy going through the thon. So I think there's probably this stigma attached to it that it's all just Cúchulain and Finn McCool. I wonder, I mean, the descriptions in it are just are astounding. The descriptions of the natural landscape, the descriptions of the, the weaponry and the clothing that's that's mm. worn, which is often the kind of imaginative um, interpretations of the 12th century monks and the ethnography by which they were surrounded, imagining the weaponry of these earlier figures kind of thing. But even, you know, the, the, the reference to, um, I mean, Cúchulain goes around all over slaughtering left right and center um in his with him and his, his charioteer leg and his chariot is just like bristling with knives and it's described as just this what every corner was a tearing place is one of the lines it's, just, it's a just a bloodbath total bloodbath yeah and they're at, like everything is exact ex- or is excuse yeah. me, everything is exaggerated totally and yeah fun. yeah he kills to say thousands is probably and um, kind of to underestimate how many he's mm. killed by the end of it there's and they they hold they don't hold back in terms of the gore that they describe. There are brains bashed out. There are intestines. Yeah, innards and entrails everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, they're cutting from nave to chap, which kind of was almost Shakespearean. Was always that nave to chap in yeah, Macbeth yeah, that yeah. reminds me. They At had one point. Cuchulain says he's gonna he 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 says uh, something on the lines. It's a fine day to have. Um, men's necks whizzing through the air like bees in summer. Yes, he he's riding stick. around with heads on. Um, spears as he what's the there, there's one there's one uh, entry at the start where he goes off looking for trouble with his charioteer as a chi- as a kind of child this is before the thon starts 
and he finds these brothers who, whose father was killed by the instruments. So they have a grievance with Ulster and he finds them, kills them all. And on the way back, he has their, their heads in his chariot, nine heads something like this in his chariot. And he also then manages to capture a wild stag, which he kind of, he stares at so intensely that yes. it, it, it follows him in the chariot. And then he's throwing stones at a flock of, ge- a flock of swans or, or geese in the air and taking some of them with him. So that when he comes back to the fort, he's got nine heads in the chariot, wild stag behind him and a, and, a, and all these swans or geese flying over and this is how he enters back in you know, <laughs> Isn't that after the most his day amazing it's incredible image. it's absolutely amazing or when he's playing hurling he's kind of um you know it'll say uh 550s of the the you know the boyhood troop mm. or of ulster he just they just, everyone tries to score goals against him and no one can all the, the 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 numbers of warriors that are destroyed um and the brutality which with they're all killed he describes even you know He's going to heap skulls on necks and necks on shoulders mm. and shoulders on arms and arms on wrists and wrists on fingers and fingers again. on nails. It goes on and on and on and on. Down to the very minute detail. Totally, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's totally incredible. Um, and then there's 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 one, I suppose, after, as as Alil and Maeve, actually, who, I don't know if we even mentioned at the start, they the, the famous kind of kind of uh, catalyst, say, for the town is that this, this the king and queen of the Connacht. That pun there. What did I say? Catalyst. Catalyst. Oh God, sorry. No, sorry. I was not a conscious it's one. Friday, I sorry. Um, that they're 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 lying in bed, and there's this the the opening chapter of the pillow talk, where where Adele says to Maeve, oh, "Isn't it good that you're a kind of kept woman?" And she's mm. like, "What? What are you talking about?" And they describe how she is as rich as he is, and that she doesn't need him at all, basically. And they they bring out all their riches, and it turns out that the only difference is that Adele has. Uh, the Shunvanach, this this demon bull White that was bull. from Maeve's um, um, herd, but it went over to, to his herd. And she now needs to get its counterpart. And there's a really interesting story to the creation of those two bulls, these kind of supernatural figures who are always warring and struggling, whatever. But as those figures are marching across the Kunuchta, the, the Kunuchta are marching to Ulster to steal these, these bulls and, and um, to take them by force against the, the soldiers of Ulster who are laid low with this there's been affected by the spell basically so they can't they're as weak as women in childbirth they can't um uh, defend, defend themselves at all and kind of this curse that was put on them um Kukulun is kind of going around you know murdering all these warriors leaving signs in the natural landscape as they march along and you often have these accounts where he fights in single combat as the rest of the armies watch just mm-hmm. this older kind of there are, seem to be references that suggested to archaic practices regarding kind of warriorship they're all bound by these kind of laws of honor of what mm-hmm. they can do and can't do and so on but one of the most well-known um, and other similar accounts in, in the town is the, the warp spasm, as yes. Thomas Kinsler refers to it. And then the account or the, the piece afterwards, which is referred to as the slaughter on the plains of Moorhebna, where it was referred to as the sixfold slaughter and one of the uncountable slaughters of the town, where the, 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 the chronicler gives kind of um, accounts of all the kings who were killed. You have no, they're like, we have no idea how many people were killed. And Cúchulainn is driving his chariot so hard around that it's kind of it's going down into the earth and driving up these clods and, and stones and boulders. And so it's driving a, a trench as deep that would divide the provinces of Ireland. And he's just he's just turned into this kind of this fiendish monster basically. Mm-hmm. After all this treachery that's puts puts on him, he has this horse spasm. He he sees the armies. I'll read this piece from it. Dubas actually describes it very well. It, it really does. So there's what should I just say that Cúchulainn is described as being oh, yeah, one of the most handsome yeah, men yeah, yeah. in Ireland, and that women, the women of Connacht, often um, stand on the shoulders of their men and their poets to see him when to they get can. A glance of him. And yet, as Johnny will now read, in his moments of war frenzy, 
oh, the good looks they go out the window drastically. So basically, to, to proceeding to kind of this spasm, it says that the four provinces of Ireland settled down and camped on where heaven the plain. And so Cuchulain took his place near them at the grave mound in Derga. At nightfall, his charioteer kindled a fire for him, and he saw in the distance, over the heads of the four provinces of Ireland, the fiery flickering of gold weapons in the evening sunset clouds. Rage and fury seized him at the sight of that army, at the great forces of his foes, the immensity of his enemies. He grasped his two spears, his shield and his sword, and he shook the shield and rattled his spears and flourished the sword and gave the warrior's scream from his throat, so that demons and devils and goblins of the glens and fiends of the air replied. So hideous was the call he uttered on high. And then it says, then the Nemen stirred the armies to confusion. And a hundred people die. And this this huge panic from his scream sets off Nemen. Nemen appears another time. And Nemen is one of the, the, the figures, the deity or the, the, the goddesses in a way, who become associated with the Banshee in later tradition, as does the Morrigan or the Morgi and the Phantom Queen who, who manifests as a crow that alights on his shoulder when he dies or a raven who appears throughout the the narrative of this kind of um, death harbinger. And Nemen means panic, and, and she kind of spreads across the hosts of these armies and just causes confusion and disarray. So Cuchulain is seized by this fury, has this scream. A hundred people, a uh, hundred warriors fell dead of fright and terror that night in the heart of the guarded camp. So this is kind of um, the, the, I suppose, the bit the, before before he has his, uh, his, his warp spasm. But he goes into such a fury, and it's described then, it says, the first warp spasm seized Cuchulain and made him into a monstrous thing, hideous and shapeless, unheard of. His shanks and joints, every knuckle and angle and organ from head to foot, shook like a tree in the flood or a reed in the stream. His body made a furious twist inside his skin, so that his feet and shins and knees switched to the rear, and his heels and calves switched to the front. The bald sinews of his calves switched to the front of his shins, each big knot the size of a warrior's bunched fist. On his head, the temple sinews stretched to the nape of his neck, each mighty, immense, measureless knob as big as the head of a month-old child. His face and features became a red bowl. He sucked one eye so deep into his head that a wild crane couldn't probe it onto his cheek out of the depths of his skull. The other eye fell out along his cheek. His mouth weirdly distorted. His cheek peeled back from his jaws until the gullet appeared. His lungs and liver flapped in his mouth and throat. His lower jaw struck the upper, a lion-killing blow, and fiery flakes large as a ram's fleece reached his mouth from his throat. His heart boomed loud in his breast like the baying of a watchdog at its, at its feed or the sound of a lion among bears. Malignant mists and spurts of fire, the torches of the bow, flickered red in the vaporous clouds that rose boiling above his head. So fierce was his fury. The hair of his head twisted like the tangle of a red thorn bush stuck in a gap. If a royal apple tree with all its kingly fruit were shaken above him, scarce an apple would reach the ground, but each would be spiked on a bristle of his hair as it stood upon his scalp with rage. The hero halo rose out of his brow. This is the symbol that appears in his forehead when he goes nuts, basically. Long and broad as a warrior's whetstone, long as a snout, and he went mad, rattling his shields, urging on his charioteer and harassing the hosts. Then, tall and thick, steady and strong, high as the mast of a noble ship, rose up from the dead centre of his skull a straight spout of black blood, darkly and magically smoking, like the smoke from a royal hostel when a king is coming to be cared for at the close of a winter day. Be still my beating heart. Shapers. 
<laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? What an ama- amazing description. But you remember there was one episode where he has one of those as a child. Yeah. And on the sports on the field. Yeah. Play. And do you know how they calm him when he's they trying? They put him in the vats of water. Yes, but they bring out all the women. Oh, they bare their breasts and, and and he hides his countenance. They say with shame, and, yes. then, and then they put him in the vats of water. The first one explodes. The second one boils. And the third one cools them. Co- cools and down. then he goes yeah. and sits on Crower McNass's knee. knee. Yeah, he sits on the king's knee. Amazing. Just calm down now. Yeah. Calm down. So that's his war spasm. And then this this is when the, the sixfold slaughter starts and there's just bodies, heaped on bodies, and it kind of I mean, I won't even go go through the, the reading of it, but it's just, it's an incredible the description of the 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 physicality, the the very there's a not there's not a stuffy attitude in the town at all to 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 the body or to death yeah. or violence or sex or any of these kind of things. Yeah. Not at all. There is no flavour of Christendom really to be found in it, or at least not 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 an overbearing one. Anyone would say. But the next day after after that, he figures that after his warp spasm that he hasn't um, shown enough of himself. So he he parades himself in front of the his his enemy's armies. And that's when the women are kind of clamoring up to have a look. What's he, what does he look like? And it describes him as being kind of how unbearably gorgeous he is. But he's got seven pupils in each eye. And, and seven and fingers. Seven fingers. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you're pretty, pretty gorgeous there. He, he sounds like this absolute kind of, um, uh, kind of maniacal figure, basically. But that's one of the things I can just want to touch on for people who, um, again, just look, trying to look at this more critically and what we can explore further about Colin and the time. There's an article that explores whether he was god man or animal Mm. and it's fascinating Mm. because it kind of looks at these links so again when you see things like the warp spasm as kinsla calls it or the torque as carson calls it this kind of transformation and his his known supernatural links with the other world that he can live these two lives when lou his protector comes and as we know what kind of another world figure so people and scholars have looked at this idea of and not finn but kuhulin as another world being, whether he mm. is a god, they then look at his more human moments when he shows pain or shows weakness. Mm. We know that he needs to sleep for three days because he is so tired and wounded. And um, we know that he's very human traits like jealousy from other stories um, in the Ulster cycle. And then this interesting link with animals, because obviously we associate him with laterally the hound, the hound mm. of Ulster. He's associated with horses, those foals, in mm-hmm. that kind of first original birth story when he's supposedly begotten, that he's discovered with two foals yeah. that travel with him t- kind of throughout most of his life. He's associated with deers as well. Um, and what else? There's there's certainly a lot of bird lore associated with Cúhollán as you go yeah. through some of the stories. And what was the other one? Oh, and he's also ca- called himself a bull in one of the stories. Mm. So again, for people just curious <coughs> to learn, there's so much more to Cúhollán, um, as we've been learning this oh, month. It's, it's amazing. As it kind of these different aspects of his character, so well, well worth looking into. Yeah, totally, totally, yeah. And and some of the th- th- you see these amazing kind of um, little references to things that I just thought were astounding in it as well. At the at the at the outset, when Maeve and Alil are are heading off, their armies are starting off. The cha- Maeve's charioteer says, "Let's get the blessing of the sun on on our." Um, on our endeavor, so he, he he decides to to turn the chariot to the right in a, in a circle, um, as in to turn it kind of rightward or sunward or that which goes with nature or whatever. And you see lots of kind of stuff in in folk tradition those ideas about directions where that which is kind of at the left is kind of anti natural, sinister, or whatever. And so they they turn sunwise, and as they kind of finish their turn, they see this young woman standing there, and it turns out she's a prophetess, a seer, and they ask her, 
um, Maeve, for Delm. yeah, and and they and Maeve asks. So it's just it's, they've asked for this blessing from the sun so that they'll have kind of good fortune. And having completed this circle, they suddenly see this woman and ask her, "How is our? How are we going to fare?" And she says, uh, "Pretty bloody ominously, uh, I see crimson, I see red." And she asks them again, "I see crimson, I see red." And and she says it a third time to them. Describes that. You're all, it's just going to be a, a world of death and corpses awaits you, basically. Mm. Which seems totally unlikely because they're, they're riding off towards uh, the, uh, people whose army is laid low. It's one man. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's kind of this one person against. Um, but there are other instances then regarding these kind of chariots and the charioteer and their master or whatever, where Cúchulain is greatly offended at one point. I forget the exact instance in the narrative because he sees a charioteer turn leftward against him. And this left turn is a kind of taken as an insult by the person who views it. Mm. So these these kind of strange, um, I don't know, symbolic aspects or, or kind of uh, laws of honour and different codes that seem totally alien to us now in, in many ways, but some of which perhaps have echoes in folk tradition, although it's very, very dangerous to kind of posit these links between such disparate kind of... But we love uh, to conjecture, Johnny. We do love to, I love a bit of conjecture, yeah. But um, it's, hard, it's hard to kind of point to the origins of these things, but I just, I was struck by some of the, the references that the chronicler kind of or the scribe makes in describing even these these kind of sunward turns or the offence taken by a leftward turn of a chariot, these kind of very strange. But it's the same aspects. way he's fighting for yeah, because they're kind of yeah, north yeah, and yeah. south, um, because he's in the north of the fort and Ferdy's in the south. So again, mm. left, right, north, south, um, yeah. clockwise, the yeah. direction of the sun. It all we just need to understand how to read these um, hidden codes. Really. What was the thing? The quote you were reading earlier on that kind of I guess it goes it, it warns against that. Stiff oh, Thompson's. Stiff Thompson. I love a quote, as you know because there are people who will always say it better than I can. So this is Stith Thompson writing about um, literary interpretation, which I just found very relevant to this, so I thought I'd read it out. On the whole, a quest for meanings outside the tale or myth itself is doomed to failure because we simply do not know the frame of mind of the unknown person in the unknown place and the unknown time and the unknown culture who first contrived the story. The search for the original meaning of any folk story is quite as impossible as the search for the origin of that story. For both quests, adequate data are missing. We are left with a choice of making a guess according to our own predilections or of saying that we do not know. It is by all means preferable to say that we do not know. Thank you, Mr. Thompson. There you go. Yes. It's, I mean, in the sense of, say, in the context of meaning as well, I was just thinking as you're reading that, the, the figure of Cúchulain has entered into or has become a symbol for um or became a symbol for kind of for for nationalist struggle in ireland and, and that he'd often be known for that as that kind of figure as well this kind of doomed um hero mm. and we see that even there are examples in in um in contemporary culture in, in the modern period if you walk down o'connell street in the gpo you'll see that statue oliver shepherd statue with the man tied to the rock who, who's dead with a, a cr- the hero tied to the rock with the, sh- the crow upon his shoulder and that's cuchulain in his death pose that's how um the, the kind of the narrative of the ulster cycle ends in certain versions anyway um and he was taken as this kind of this this archetypal uh, heroic figure who in the context of irish nationalism was used as a kind of an archetype or a symbol to represent the the kind of the sad and weary struggle of 1916 in particular de valera um I think that, that in 1928 maybe that statue was bought or maybe that's what it was made but in 1935 it was unveiled in the GPO and uh, De Valera said it was um, something like a testament to the, abi- the the dauntless courage and abiding constancy of our people or something mm-hmm. like that so it became this kind of symbol for, for um, a kind of a doomed struggle a doomed hero basically but 
interestingly, and something that I could, that I quite enjoy in a sense, is that he's such an archetypal figure that he also has transcended those kind of narrow, more recent, for want of a better word, political divides, and that he's also represented as a heroic figure in the context of unionist loyalist national inclination, that sort of nationalism. So that mm. that that apparently kind of warring uh, factions and their political political inclinations both have this this figure as a kind of central. Um, uh, hero in a sense he's just this because it's it's so archetypal and uh, arcane and old in a sense he is the quintessential kind of um, expression of heroic spirit in a certain context that's been taken by these two separate communities uh, to be held up in the same the same way so I suppose you can't point to the kind of as Thompson says the 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 objective or meaning necessarily but it's trickled down in a certain sense. People take from it what they need or what they what they want and they cast it again, you know. But that's the danger, and I suppose this is where I'm going to be controversial, because we spoke about this yesterday, mm. that I do not find Cúhollán to be heroic in, in the sense that he's portrayed to be. I find a lot to dislike in Cúhollán. You were saying that, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I know, we were outraged. I, 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 think, he, he, I think you couldn't have a more... Um, kind of perfect in a sense expression of heroic spirit but he, he's, he has no fear of, of death he has no fear of kind of he has like dauntless courage the, the feats and things that he manages to, to, to do yes he does things like for example who's the figure Alil's son Orham and he accidentally finds his charioteer and he says don't worry I've no quarrel with charioteers but he goes and cuts off Orham's head and he demands that the charioteer run home with the head on his back and when the charioteer gets to Alil and Maeve uh, his sling goes through his brains and then describes it well actually Kuchel and uh, he said he didn't have a problem with charioteers but he did when they did wrong because he hadn't gotten to the border that he said he could take the head off or whatever so he does these things and kind of he says that he doesn't kill women when he says he won't kill me but he really also kills them whatever but for me just given the kind of the the sense of um, kind of the courage and physical danger and defense of his people and so on and that kind of the the even the hyper exaggeration, he's like an archetype of an archetype or something like that. You know? Are you so viewing he, that with your life experience though and coming at it from a more gendered view as a man? And I don't mean that. Yeah, that, maybe. Yeah, because entirely, you know, kind of even just looking at it, so now I've, I've, I knew we were going to fight about this and I know you like to win, so I've written down my points. No, clear Yes, go. I have. Because <laughs> I knew you liked to win, so I'm like, I better you know, have there'll be no point. fighting, there'll be no fighting. Right, he's an adulterer. Not true. <laughs> right, an adulterer. Yes. Because although he marries Emer after the wooing of Emer and all the work that he has to do, he's known to um, sleep with Aoife and she bears a child who he later kills. He kills the child, yeah. He also cheats on Emer with Fan, the daughter of the, the king of the Isle of, of, of Man. He does. So adulterer, that label. Maeve does the same though, but yeah. Okay, that's, I'm not, not speaking about Okay, oh, yes, that's fair enough. He's a narcissist. I don't think he's an narcissist. He's not arrogant. No, this. Right, I'll come to this. Okay. So he, no, we were chatting about this, that he wants fame. This is where it all begins. Mm. He hears the um, prophecy by Carwood saying that whoever um, shall take up arms yeah. today will be known, their fame will be known in Ireland forever. Yeah. Um, but he will live for only a short time. Mm. And he says, yes, that's me. So he goes and takes up arms. Oh, spirit. Narcissism, ego I, I, I driven. I don't think he's a, he's a narcissist. I mean, he can back it all up. But he's just he's a kind of. I just think now apparently, and this is one of the things I have a problem with in the time. Because he's meant to be seventeen. Yeah, uh, that's it. Point, yeah, yeah. Which is ridiculous. So he's just probably immature, and as we know, boys mature more slowly than women. That's true. So I just find him as just maybe maybe it is just that kind of immaturity. 
But, and then he does break the warrior code on more than one occasion. As you said, he kills the charioteers. He kills, I've counted at least three women that he's killed. Um, and also, the really thing that annoys me, that <laughs> you can't wake him up. And he yeah. killed the servant just he because the servant he woke him up. Him up. Yeah. And his head and his feet have to be equal distance Level. from the ground when he be- sleeps. before he sleeps. Yeah. That's, it's just, it's a little bit unreasonable. Uh, maybe. Um, but I would say that's just the nature of... Um, so he's not a perfect hero by no, any No, he's not, he's not, he's not. But insofar as he's just a symbol of violent struggle and that courage and so on that manifests, for me, that's kind of the embodiment of of heroic spirit in that sense it, it doesn't make him a kind of a lovely guy in this kind of um sense or any kind of christianized view of things or something mm-hmm. like that but um in the context of the narrative i don't find myself being like oh come on don't do that don't you know they're all at it they're all kind of kind of either deceiving each other or or, or using trickery against one another they're always kind of very questionable characters or and even the with women as you said some of like Maeve is appalling Maeve is am- yeah, she's amazing she's, she's an awful character yeah but she's she's amazing as well just just to, to kind of the, Machiavellian yeah totally yeah absolutely and all these kind of false promises of peace and the treachery and so on and turning people against each other and it's a uh, and offering the friendship of her thighs a lot to every Tom Dick and yeah Harry, amazing which it's, to it's, me at first I thought is that is that uh, a gendered my God, poor Maeve having to do this. But then actually, I think she enjoys it. Oh, she, and she, so and she's just steering. She's just like, she's what she's steering in different ways yeah. and so on. And stirring the She's pot. an amazing figure. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're to try to apply um, the kind of contemporary, many of the kind of contem- the values of contemporary liberalism yeah, or something no, like course. this to this text, like you're, you're going to find yourself upside down and sit up and back in front of it. Yeah. You, you just, it's not going to work, you know. Um, but for, the, for the, the imaginative kind of fervor and power and the dramatic display and the panoramas presented within it, and even the sheer the the, the violence of it, um, it's it is just this. It's it's it a, is an epic. Is, is is the only way to describe it, I suppose. Um, do you want to finish with the reading or something like that? Was there a bit that you wanted to? We were going to do our two favorite bits actually this week, yeah. weren't we? Rather than our kind of um, treat from the archive, we just thought because the story is so rich that we would choose our own favorite parts. Mm. So did you want to read yours? Yeah. Lovely. What have you? What have you got? Because I didn't tell you what. Or no, I did oh, tell you what bit I have. Is this our surprise? So what bit did you have? The bit, my favorite piece out of this, is precedes the time. There's a story, of kind of how the bulls were begotten, and there's this quarrel between these two pig keepers. There's these two magic pig keepers whose kings both have bad blood with one another, and their people set them against one another with lies and treachery. They say that uh, that one is. They tell one that the other has been telling lies about him, saying he's more powerful. And so this basically, they begin to use their spells against one another to see just who is more powerful than the next. And then enmity grows between them. And then they become, basically they change into two birds that quarrel over the plains for a year. And then they turn into two sea monsters that are seen devouring each other in lakes for years. And then they turn into two dragons that pour snow down on each other's towns for a year. And then they become two phantoms and scare the crap out of each other for a year. Um, and then they they're phantoms of the air monsters of the air for a year and then they turn they fall from the air as maggots into the field and are eaten by these two cows and from those cows are born Dun and Fionnvanach Dun and Fionn who are these old deities as well dark and light basically these two figures who are kind of fated to be in eternal combat the whole time but there's this amazing description and these these become the bulls that the whole town is, is centred around these two figures who eventually have this battle and kind of kill each other where they both die but this is a description of um, of the brown bull of Dunn. and it says this was the brown bull of, of Coolnia, dark brown, dire, haughty, with young health. 
horrific, overwhelming, ferocious, full of craft, furious, fiery flanks, narrow, brave, brutal, thick-breasted, curly, but curly-browed head cocked high, growling and eyes glaring, tough-maned neck, thick and strong, snorting mighty in muzzle and eye, with a true bull's brow and a wave's charge and a royal wrath, the rush of a bear and a beast's rage and a bandit's stab and a lion's fury. Thirty grown boys could take their place from rump to nape, a hero to his herd at morning, foolhardy at the herd's head, to his cows the beloved, to husbandman a prop, the father of great beasts, overlooks the ox of the earth. And then you have Fionnvanach, the white cow, and it says, a white, a white head and white feet had the bull Fionnvanach, and a red body the colour of blood, as if bathed in blood, or dyed in the red bog, or pounded in purple, with his blank paps under breast and back, and his heavy mane and great hooves, the beloved of the cows of eye, with ponderous tail and a stallion's breast, and a cow's eye apple, and a salmon's snout, and a hinder haunch, he romps and rut, born to bear victory, bellowing in greatness, idol of the ox herd, the prime demon Shunvanach, and then next bit is the taunt begins. That's amazing. exquisite actually, it's isn't it? Amazing, yeah. And it depends again on what translation you're reading, because my translation wouldn't have had that. That kind of style. That preface. Yeah, yeah. it's just, yes, yeah, so these these are the stories that, that set up before the taunt even starts, but our party also is like, that's it's just the quarrel between those two pig keepers, and then what they become is, I think, my favourite bit of the whole thing. I don't know why. Amazing. Good choice, actually. Yeah. Okay, well, mine is, I've gone for um, the, I suppose, the sweeter element. So this is an extract from the episode where Cúhollín is fighting Ferdia again. Yeah, it's awful. It yeah. is. It's one of the main kind of motifs. So you've got pillow talk, you've got the boyhood deeds of Cúhollín, you've got the kind of slaughter in between, and then you've got, towards the end, the killing of Ferdia, who was Cúhollín's foster brother and great friend. But it's one of the moments, although I don't like Cúhollín that much as we've discussed, it's one of the moments where I think he does show a noble heart and just a bit of kindness and consideration and humanity for his mm. um, brother. So basically after their first day of fighting, and again it shows the warrior code I think very well that Johnny mentioned. So after their first day of fighting, they're wounded and bloodied um, and Ferdia says, let's lay off these weapons, we'll reach no conclusion this way. Very well, said Cúhollín. If it's time to lay off, let's lay off. They laid off then and threw the weapons to their charioteers. Then they came up to each other and each put an arm around the other's shoulders and gave him three kisses. Their horses grazed together that night and their charioteers warmed themselves by the same fire and their charioteers made beds and pillows of fresh rushes for the wounded men. Then teams of doctors came to salve them and heal them and they put soothing plants and herbs and curing charms to their countless cuts and stabs and gashes. For every soothing plant and herb and curing charm that was put to the countless cuts and stabs and gashes of Cúhollín, he sent the same to Ferdia on the south side of the fort, so that the men of Ireland could not say, if Ferdia fell by his hand, that it was because he got better care. And for every piece of food and pleasant, wholesome and reviving drink that the men of Ireland gave Ferdia, he sent the same to Cúhollín on the north side of the fort. Ferdia had more suppliers than Cúhollín, for he was looked after by the men of all Ireland, but only the people of Bregia Plain were looking after Cúhollín. They attended to him on a daily basis. They stayed there that night. They got up early the next morning and went out to the ford of battle again. What weapons shall we use today, Ferdia? said Cúhollín. It's your choice of weapons until nightfall, said Ferdia, for it was my choice yesterday. And that to me is what we should all be aiming for in humanity, really. Just that. Choice weapons. <laughs> Choice weapons. Every man for himself. <laughs> but no, just that moment, amidst all the bloodshed and stupidity over 
um, fame and ego and kind of possession of bulls and wealth and all the rest. Just care for your fellow man. Yes, indeed. There's the, the moment afterwards then when he's killed him, when Cuchulain has eventually killed him and he's just broken hearted mm. and he goes into this weird daze in his chariot here. So like, wake up, snap out of it. Yeah. Everyone's coming to kill you. The armies are coming and he just, he's like, oh, what's the point? He's totally, but it's one of the most beautiful kind of scenes in it, but it's heartbreaking because all these kind of two best friends hacking and slashing and destroying each other. That'll be us in a few years, Johnny. That'll be us. We yeah. started off as friends yeah. and then... <laughs> <laughs> and on that pleasant note... We'll see you next month, or we'll will see. we? Or will we? Or yeah. will we? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Lovely. Fair play to you. Thanks a million. Plan hard, yeah. Plan.